0: A COVID-era expansion of Medicaid nationwide has expired. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Sergio Bustos. And I'm Tim Padgett. The COVID-19 public
1: health emergency put in place by the federal government has ended. We examine what that means for people who can't afford health care.
0: Next, a state-owned insurance company is proposing a 14% statewide rate hike. We explore what impact this will have on millions of property owners across Florida. Finally, the Florida
1: Atlantic University men's basketball team has made it to the final four of March Madness. It's the first appearance for the Owls in the team's 35-year history. The Miami Hurricanes will also be there for the first time in their school's history.
0: All of that today on the South Florida Roundup.
1: Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Sergio Bustos. And I'm Tim Paget. More than 900,000 people in Florida may lose health coverage beginning tomorrow as the COVID-era expansion of Medicaid
0: runs out and state officials choose not to replace it. Florida is one of 10 states that has failed to expand Medicaid, contributing to its status as the state with the second highest uninsured rate in the country, only behind Texas. Critics say this puts many Floridians at risk of losing their health coverage.
1: So what happens to those who lose their coverage? Are
0: you in a position where you might lose
1: Medicaid coverage? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. WLRN's healthcare reporter Veronica Saragovia joins us now. Veronica, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so let's start with the basics here, Veronica. Tomorrow, the federal government's expanded pandemic period Medicaid coverage program ends. Why is Florida opting not to continue this access to Medicaid for so many Floridians?
2: Well, Tim, what happened was, to explain what's going on, it's that in 2020, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the federal government passed a law under President Trump that would allow, uh, would give a lot of money to keep people on Medicaid. And this really helped families, you know, parents of children who could stay on Medicaid if they had lost their job. And now what's happened is that recently the federal government set an end date, which is tomorrow, March 31st. And that doesn't... April 1st. Well, it's March thirty first is the end date, and right. then starting April first, okay. then the state will go through this whole process. They have twelve months mm-hmm. to go through a process of disenrolling those people who no longer qualify. Right. But it's not that people wake up on April first and they don't no longer have insurance. Mm-hmm. They're go- they should be looking out for um, notices in the mail or in their email that their qualify their eligibility has changed. And right. um, so, so that's what's happening in a nutshell.
0: Veronica, how many people are going to be impacted by this decision to end this public health after this public health emergency ends with the coronavirus?
2: Well, Sergio, in between that time period from 2020 to 2023, uh, the state has increased from 3.8 million people on Medicaid to 5.5. So it's almost 2 million, 1.7 million people who are new newly uh, on Medicaid. That doesn't mean all of those people are being disenrolled because the uh, Department of Children and Families has identified 900,000 households in which at least one person is no longer eligible and so I would say this is gonna affect hundreds of thousands of adults um, who you know who, who will now need to find coverage?
1: But there's another factor in here that's a real specter, and that's inflation. I mean, this will Absolutely. have an immediate impact on families already trying to adjust to the increased cost of living. So, Veronica, how exactly how many people typically rely on Medicaid in the state of Florida?
2: Well, it, we have. Um, at the moment, um, there's more than five point five million people. Right, they've, you adju- said, mm-hmm. right. and, um, they've adjusted, right? And they've adjusted that some of, the, for instance, those nine hundred thousand people were no longer eligible given the federal poverty level of twenty twenty two. That has been expanded in twenty twenty three in terms of your income eligibility because of inflation. So that's why we don't have an exact number of how many people no longer qualify because it's a little.
1: But how much more onerous does inflation make it for families like these to, to access the coverage they need?
2: I mean, it's 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 so difficult. If we've been, you know, even reporting on the cost of basics like food. Right. Um, and, and we've been reporting about the increased lines of people waiting for, for donations at food pantries. And, and so something like this, having to pay for monthly premiums of health insurance would be very difficult when you are struggling with so many expenses. Yeah.
0: Let me ask, you know, Medicaid essentially is an insurance program for low-income folks. So what sort of services will people not have access to beginning tomorrow?
2: That's a great question. Medicaid covers, for instance, going to a doctor's visit, um, if there's some screenings you need to be doing, like mammograms, uh, some hospital coverage expenses, dental health, which is so important that we don't talk about as much but um, very important and also for some people who live in nursing facilities long-term care facilities that's covered and uh, children as well.
1: Now now soon the state is going to have to start determining who's eligible and who is now more importantly ineligible right what's that process going to look like
2: right i mean well it's a it's a 12 month process and already what's really important for people to know is that already notification letters have started to go out and people move a lot yeah. and so it's really important to actually opt for two forms of notification you should be getting email notifications and paper and I really encourage based on the experts I've spoken to is people to be proactive and not not wait and say you know I didn't get this I didn't get mm-hmm. that call uh, you know call whoever you've been insured by and find out um, and also the Department of Children and Families it is um, right. is in charge of who's eligible and it'd be great to to be proactive and, yeah, and so- that's
1: the agency this responsibility falls on right
2: yes exactly okay. and it's the the, um, the agency for health care administration that then manages um that manages the program but it's the the department of children and families that determines who's eligible okay
0: veronica who exactly qualifies for, med- qualifies for medicaid again it's a low income program it's an insurance program but who um who actually qualifies for it is it all depend on income?
2: It depends on income. It depends. Um, it's certainly all based on income, and the the it changes. However, if you are pregnant, if you have a child um, up through age eighteen, and the the age your eligible, like your income level, um, top level to qualify, goes down as your child ages, and um, then there's also certain people with disabilities, um, some people who are older than 65 qualify. So it's a little complex, but it does depend on your income.
1: Now, Florida is not unique in this. I mean, Florida is just a handful of states that have decided not to continue uh, with this Medicaid uh, program, this emergency program that we saw during the pandemic. This is a decision that's been made by mostly, well, I, I I should say all Republican states and all in the South um correct
2: except for wyoming i'm okay, sure that's sorry. one of the but no thanks, but you are I mean thanks, it's thanks close. for yeah, right yeah. thanks
1: for correcting me on that um no i should also say some southern states have opted to con- like north carolina exactly. just 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 recently did but for those like florida who are opting not to continue what's their reasoning
2: re- so the way to to explain people what where this all comes from it goes back to our The major healthcare reform law that was passed in 2010, the Affordable Care Act, Mm -hmm. and and Obamacare, Obamacare, right? And it, it it. goes with it has like a cost share with the states so the federal government originally offered to pay a hundred percent of expanding the income of people who would be newly eligible for Medicaid and then since 2014 that's dropped to ninety percent mm. and Republican legislatures have said they don't want for instance it Medicaid is the largest if not one of the largest expenses that Florida pays for in its budget every year so a lot of legislatures say they're gonna be stuck with Ballooning expenses because we can see even without expansion, the number of people in Florida who've been added to the Medicaid yeah. numbers has increased. I, th- I
1: think Texas Governor uh, Abbott said something this week like, uh, If we do this, it's just a tax hike waiting to happen.
2: That's how they reason it. Right. Other mm-hmm. you know, because it was the health care reform of President Barack Obama, others just say it's a politically right. toxic. Uh, measure for
1: not it. popular in states like this, but then again, we have to point out that in pockets like Hialeah, that <laughs> you have yes. the highest per capita enrollment exactly. of any community in the United States. Exactly. So there's more than a few ironies involved here. Yeah,
2: exactly. And you know, if people, the thing with um, this law is that it also made people eligible for tax subsidies on the, those monthly premiums are quite expensive. Yeah. But with it, it allowed certain people who earn a little too much for Medicaid. Um, who, but then they might qualify for these tax subsidies that make your health insurance more affordable. And that's why in a city like Hialeah, there would be people interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, all of us. It's not. I don't want to single out Hialeah. I mean, it, anybody would look for help with their premiums.
0: Right. Veronica, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the federal government was sending out checks. There were all sorts of resources available. You could actually draw down on your 401k plan. Uh, without penalties at least temporarily there are many resources available but namely access to food benefits for folks of low income this is the old food stamp program essentially it's now called the supplemental nutrition assistance program or snap yeah. benefits um are those expiring as well
2: you know that's one issue I haven't covered as much but I do know that there are the, that that's um that I actually will have to say that that's one that I'd rather not, to give any wrong information. I don't know very much about SNAP, but um, uh, yeah.
0: Safe to say the pandemic, now that it's winding down, so are the benefits.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah exactly.
1: I'm Tim Paget with Sergio Bustos. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking with WLRN health reporter Veronica Zaragovia about Medicaid coverage running out for many people in this state and, and others. Are you worried about losing your health care? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Now, Veronica, vulnerable Floridians will feel the brunt of the loss of Medicaid, this Medicaid uh, program, uh, obviously. But what should people do to find out if there's, I mean, you you spoke a little bit before about how the Department of Family uh, and Children's Services is gonna be determining eligibility, who's eligible, who's not. And and could you repeat for us the, the, the most important ways that people can now go out and find out if they're still eligible or if they're now ineligible?
2: Absolutely, well, one of the best resources people have, which is actually provided by the Affordable Care Act, is to contact a navigator. And for instance, the Florida Health Justice Project, um, has experts available on who's eligible for Medicaid? The Epilepsy Foundation. There are a lot of organizations in across South Florida who have these people who are experts on what it, who qualifies what, and also to decipher the messages you're getting might be quite complicated to understand. Some of them are just re, uh, automatically re-enrolling a person who qualifies. Uh-huh. Others have a whole bunch of different information. So you really should qualify or contact a navigator. Who could answer that question or certainly if you have an insurance company through Medicaid that you've been working with could help to contact them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say the the letter, the notification that you're getting from the state government, that would be the also the agency to contact to, to get help and see if you're eligible.
0: Beyond navigators and any other assistance that someone is saying i would like to sign up how do i how do i do this either through the obama marketplace or or any other program
2: yeah and also you know if you go to healthcare.gov so because florida didn't um, create its own Marketplace for these health insurance plans. We use the federal marketplace, and that's healthcare.gov. And when they ha- they have navigators there too, people who will help you when you go to the marketplace and you need to sign up. You might qualify for Medicaid if you've been uninsured all this time and you don't know, or you might qualify for subsidies on private plans on that marketplace so it'd be also an option is to just go st- to healthcare.gov and then try to sign up for health insurance through there because there's there are rules that even though the enrollment period has ended for the obamacare plans as we call them mm-hmm. if you had a life circumstance change like this where you lose your insurance you can then still be added so it's good okay. to yeah that's
1: that's important to know yeah. but veronica i also want to turn to something you, you Done some groundbreaking reporting on recently, if I if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, the this this question of what does losing Medicaid do to communities, um, demographics like Black women, for example, and 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 who who might be losing access to breast cancer and mammogram programs, um, Latina women, for example, or not, not just women, Latinos in general, uh, when it comes to things like leukemia. Um, talk to us a little bit about how the these very important aspects of all this could be affected as well
2: Yeah, absolutely there are year annual screenings that people should be doing especially at from the age of forty onwards where it it happens a lot that black and latino women who don't get let's say a mammogram or an annual pap smear to find out if they have cervical cancer that is the main way that a doctor could find out if there's anything wrong so i did want to tell people about the Florida Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program mm-hmm. and that's offered through the Department of, of Health and if you qualify based on income or based on um, your insurance situation you could get a free mammogram screening uh, or a or a pelvic exam I've also reported there's the Sylvester Cancer Comprehensive Cancer Center has HPV testing available Mobile testing, where they'll go to certain neighborhoods to help people access that kind of care, or HIV and AIDS care. That all of it um, is expensive when you're uninsured. Mm-hmm. A medication, for instance. So there are. Op- I do also want to tell the public about sure. Florida kid care. Mm-hmm. If you, if your child has, if you're no longer insured, that's one option for ch- for ensuring your child at a more affordable price you can also go to federally qualified health centers and those offer sliding fee scales so depending on your income you could at least get care that is more affordable.
1: Why is the leukemia situation so such a concern in the Latino community?
2: It's a great question. What I'm reporting on is that doctors who I interviewed, uh, this is a national uh, um, phenomenon, but right. in at the Sylvester comprehensive cancer center at the university of miami they're finding a majority of their patients with certain types of leukemias uh, like acute myeloid leukemia which I'll explain in a second what that is are sure. Hispanic and Latino and um, it is so very dangerous It's it, it could be dang- uh, deadly if you don't get care now you will yeah. the symptoms are such that you will know something's wrong because it's extreme fatigue and very easy bleeding and bruising so usually it will lead people to go to a doctor. But the thing is, if you're not getting your annual blood test, which going to a lab is expensive and takes time mm-hmm. and it's not so easy to do. But if you're not doing that, a doctor's not regularly checking your red blood cell count, which would be too low, and your white blood cell count, which is too high when you have leukemia.
1: And when, when we talk about things like uh, breast cancer, particularly in, in, in among black women, for example, not just mammograms, but ultrasounds are also very important. How does this all affect you know a woman's ability to get access to that kind of of, of testing not just the mammogram but ultrasound.
2: Absolutely I mean all of that is Usually, for a long time the Affordable Care Act has mandated that a lot of this preventive screening has to be covered by your health insurance. And actually in just very recently, um, there's been a federal judge in Texas who has struck down that provision and huh. a lot of this preventive care, it, it would mean that uh, insurers no longer have to cover that. Of course there's going to be a whole appeals process from the federal government, but it's it's just a, a, a very complicated time for health insurance in Florida and in the US just knowing, what's going to still be covered and what's not. So I do urge people, especially the Florida Health Justice Project, as a starting point, if you're lost and you don't know what's happening to your status, definitely reach out to them.
0: I was going to ask, are there any legal challenges to anything uh, in regards to Medicaid expansion, anything on the horizon? Because you've got a Republican-majority legislature. Uh, In fact, it's a supermajority, meaning the governor... Uh, you know, can do what he wants essentially. Yeah. And Governor DeSantis has made very clear in his positions. Any legal challenges, any, anything the advocates are are, are going to fight for uh, as it relates to Medicaid expansion and healthcare to, coverage in general.
2: Right. Well, it, when it comes to legal challenges. Florida, you know, because that decision to expand was left up to the states, There, it's not like Florida is not one of the states where people can put this on the ballot, as happened, for instance, in other states where the voters in Republican states showed that they wanted expansion and the state legislatures went forward with that. So there isn't any legal challenge that I know of so far with this without Medicaid expansion. But a lot of advocates are very hardened by the North Carolina decision in recent days to expand. It was one of the holdouts, a red state, and um, they're hoping that Florida will join and, and expand.
1: Veronica Zaragovia is WLRN's health reporter. Thanks so much for helping us understand all of this, Veronica. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much to you both. Still to
1: come. The state-run insurance company, Citizens, is proposing a 14% statewide rate hike. How will you be impacted? I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN.
0: And I'm Sergio Bustos. The state owned
1: Citizens Property Insurance Company is the insurer of last resort in Florida, and it's proposing an average 14% statewide rate hike, 14.2% to be specific. If the proposal is approved by the Office of Insurance Regulation, citizens would be raising rates for their policies, like the most common kind of homeowner insurance, primary residence, multi-parallel policies,
0: etc., by 12% come November. But what does this mean for a state that's still reeling from Hurricane Ian? Many families have not received the payouts that they originally quoted in their estimates, and many more have not received their insurance payments in general. Have you received your, your insurance payments or seen any rate hikes in your in your rates? Call us at 800-743-WLRN or 800-743-9576 or tweet us at WLRN. Joining us to discuss the current situation and possible effects of insurance rates is Washington Post climate reporter Brianna Sachs and Mark Friedlander, the Director of Corporate Communications for the Insurance Information Institute. Brianna, Mark, thank you for joining us here at WLRN. Thanks for having having me. me. Um, Let me begin with Brianna. Um, The effect of hurricane on insurance and, and the proposed write-out can't be underestimated. In your incredible reporting on this topic, you uncovered that insurers were slashing payouts far below hurricane damage estimates. How much were families seeing their claims reduced by, according to your reporting, Brianna?
3: Ah, uh, Yeah, thanks. Uh, we were seeing that people were having their claims cut by more than 80%. In some cases, it was up to 97%. And I saw several incidents where they were below the deductible. So families would get nothing.
0: I, I did see one that was, um, it went from a, a, the insurance adjuster said 500,000. And yet the uh, the payout was going to be twenty seven thousand. That was just astounding.
3: It was thirteen thousand actually. Oh, yeah, even it, lower. Yeah, Yes, even lower.
1: Well, I mean, to what extent did that really surprise, if not shock you, Brianna? I mean, the, the, the disparity uh, I, I know as even as a Floridian who's lived here for almost a quarter century, I, I was pretty shocked to see that disparity between, you know, the, the claim and, and the actual payout.
3: It as someone who is not really familiar with insurance and I live in California, so I really was new to understanding the volatile insurance market in Florida. So once I saw it once, twice, I was like, well, this is this seems pretty shocking. But then seeing it again and again and again, that to me screamed really is scary behavior that seemed According to a lot of my sources, to to be premeditated or coordinated on behalf of insurance companies, and, and and and
1: explain to us who really turned out to be the whistleblowers in effect, uh, in 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 your reporting on this.
3: So the way that this system works is that field adjusters go out, and these are independent field adjusters and i learned in my reporting that a lot of these people are brought on just ad hoc they may not have they might not have a lot of experience with catastrophe but the four or five people with whom i spoke they'd been doing this for a long time they were catastrophe certified and they were the ones who came forward and they they just it just wasn't sitting right with them they had been on past storms and they had said they'd seen a little bit of this in the past, but Ian was was just next level. So they decided just to, to speak out because they it was their name on the final estimates. And, and they were like, this right. isn't work. It doesn't even resemble what I did.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and the insurance company's rationale then for 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 you know, lowballing, as some might say so drastically.
3: We never heard from the insurance companies. They never got back to me. Yeah,
0: so, let's talk a little bit further about those insurers. Um, uh, about the insurers that were uh, affected, the the residents affected by Hurricane Ian. How large are the insurers in comparison to the carriers that have already left Florida's market? Because there's been a a stampede to the door on in terms of the insurance market.
3: Yeah, and Mark, I'm sure has a a really wide breadth of knowledge on this because I spoke to him for my story, and he was very helpful. Um, But for the insurance companies I was investigating was Florida Peninsula and Heritage, and and both are pretty sizable regional carriers, I learned. And, you know, Heritage has, uh, I I forgot how many that I think they, you know, they took on or maybe it was Florida Peninsula, but at least one of them had about like 23,000 claims. So it was it was significant.
1: Now, Brianna, how are these? I, I think a, a big question a lot of residents would have is why do the insurance carriers themselves have such wide latitude to be able to adjust and alter these claims uh, in, in a way that's, that some might feel you know is a little peremptory? I mean, you know what what you know what is the, the the basis for their ability to slash these claims, for example, as 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 much as they have or so did at least look- in this case
3: right so what i learned through my reporting and this is based on i've i think i've been having having even more conversations now with a lot of people in the industry is that these insurance companies these regional ones they're smaller they don't have a lot of reserves in the bank nor do they have the amount of adjusters needed on hand to uh, respond to an event such as ian so they reach out to a third party administrator and that tpa brings on independent adjusters and the carrier gives the 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 license the contracting company guidelines basically saying we're not going to pay for this we're not writing for roofs we're not gonna replace any tile roofs. These are things I heard throughout my reporting. These are usually not done in writing. They're done on phone calls or you know Zoom meetings. And then the uh, TPA, they send out the field adjusters and the field adjusters go out and they write the damage that they see and they turn that in. And then it's the desk adjuster under the direction of the TPA who goes into this system called exactimate and changes and removes items, damage narratives from the desk or the field adjusters work and leaves their name on the report. And so that they can keep the contract with the carrier.
1: There was one really uh glaring example that you point out in your story, I recalled involving a roof uh, and, and, and the, the, the extent of, of 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 coverage that the, you know the carrier actually you know started you know pay, ended up paying for was, was minuscule uh, c- compared to what the resident had had first put forth can can you tell us a little bit about that example that you you you, you gave in, in your article
3: Uh, Sure. That was something that was very striking to me. And that came up over and over in the reports that I reviewed is that carriers just were not going to pay for roofs, even if they half of the roof, like I saw, was in uh, the yard of of the homeowner. So the would only write for a few tiles or they would say that we're just only going to replace like a a small section so one couple that i profiled they needed a new roof and the insurance company heritage with whom they're still battling went in and changed it to say they only needed a, a partial replacement and gave them they haven't even given them the amount that they need for it, but they sent them a check for $10,000, which in this day and age with the cost of materials and everything just doesn't really do anything. Um, Another thing that I saw from, or that I heard from adjusters was that the carrier floor, this was Florida Peninsula, no matter the damage of the roof, they would go in and they would only, they would change the damage to say only like 12 tiles were damaged and that they picked one number that was repeated one or two times on several different claims which didn't really make sense.
0: Right. So Brianna, t- I was going to ask. So so you have this disparity in claim. Well, what does what can a homeowner even do to challenge uh, uh the, the lowballing?
3: I think that was the most frustrating and heartbreaking part for, for me because a lot of these homeowners are elderly, they're re- retired, they um are now put in this position where it's their full-time job to try and go after an insurance company who is very good at denying or delaying the the claim and so they'll send them to one adjuster or the other and then once they get to another adjuster that restarts the process all over again so they have to wait another 30 days or however long it is and i had several people tell me that they complained to the state, to the Department of Financial Services, and nothing was being done until I reached out a few times. And now apparently it might be under investigation, but it is really hard for these homeowners to even get a human on the phone, uh, let alone, you know, if they have to go after an insurance company or if they need to bring on an attorney after that new law in December, they're going to have to cover those costs as well.
1: I'm Tim Padgett with Sergio Bustos. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Citizens Insurance's proposed 14% statewide rate hike. What are your concerns about this proposal? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Now to Mark Friedlander with the Insurance Information Institute. Mark, why is Citizens Insurance proposing this statewide rate hike?
4: Citizens is in a very precarious financial position, and they have been for many years. As they continue to grow and become the largest home insurer in the state of Florida with over 1.2 million customers today, they have their risk exposure increasing tremendously. And the real problem with Citizens is they are very rate restricted. So they are not allowed to charge the same rates as a private insurer. We call this in the business, not actuarially sound rates. So if they were to charge what private insurers would charge for the type of risk they're writing, they would be requesting a 58.5% increase. And that's according to citizens actuarial analysis. Instead, they are rate restricted. So the average rate hike that they are now Going forth with the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation for review is 14.2%. A little bit less in South Florida. We broke it down. And for homeowners in South Florida, Miami-Dade would be 11.9%. Broward homeowners would be 12.2%. And Palm Beach County homeowners would be 12.9%. So a little less than what that average equates to. But once again, they are forced by state regulations to sell insurance below market. And to give you an example, the average premium for a citizen's customer today is roughly 44% less than the private market averages. So you could see where the problems are. And what happens here is if we get hit with a major storm, particularly South Florida, where the majority of citizens policyholders live, it would wipe out the reserves of citizens. What happens then? Every Florida consumer is on the hook to help replenish those funds. That means we would see multi-year surcharges on our insurance renewal premium bills. Whether you're a property owner, a renter, or a driver, even on your auto insurance bills, you would see multi-year surcharges to help replenish the funds of citizens. So it's a real problem in terms of risk exposure mm-hmm. and the availability of funds to pay claims for a big
1: loss. So Citizens' argument is you may be feeling squeezed, but it could be a lot worse.
4: Well, we we saw it play out this week, actually. Uh, Right after Citizens made its announcement, there were two virtual rate hearings with the Office of Insurance Regulation for Private Insurers. Those rate averages that those two companies are seeking are roughly 66% to over 100%. So- You compare that to what Citizens wants to enact, and you can see a major difference. And let me just turn the clock back one year. Last year, Citizens asked for a double-digit rate increase as well, not quite as big as this one, but fairly close. They were only allowed by the regulator to implement 6.4%. So we looked at the Florida market last year. We, We analyzed that. The average increase in Florida last year was 33% year-over-year year renewal increase, Citizens was only allowed to implement a 6.4% average increase, which went into effect last November 1st. Mark, and well, this year, we are—go oh, ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: Please. let me just uh, continue on this point. My understanding is there's also a 20% rule, where even if you wanted to go to Citizens, if another carrier offers you T- within a premium within twenty percent of citizens, you'd have to go with that one. Is that true?
4: That is correct. That's actually part of the regulations that were passed back in December at the special session. So, give you an example. Say your renewal premium is three thousand. If you get a quote from a private insurer that falls within twenty percent, that'd be thirty six hundred cap. You would be required to move to that private insurer. Sounds. Possible, but here's the situation. Once again, citizens' average premium is 44% less than the private market. So, most likely, very few private insurers would be within 20% of your citizens' rate. So, you're getting a real discount if you have citizens, even though it doesn't seem like it, if you get, say, a 12%. Increase which would become effective starting this November first, uh, and rolls out through the entire year after that based on your yeah. specific renewal date. But looking at fourteen point two percent averages versus what we project to be forty percent averages in increases mm-hmm. in the private market, citizens customers still are getting the better end of the deal.
1: Now we have a call from Miguel in Fort Lauderdale. Miguel, you're oh. on the Florida South Florida Roundup.
5: Yes, good morning. Anyways, the biggest problem we're having in Florida is the insurance fraud. People are remodeling their whole houses because they happen to have a leak on their host bid, and it's ridiculous. I I am a handyman. I go to many houses on a weekly basis, and I'm tired of seeing these insurance frauders taking advantage of the uh, game. And another problem we're having is that insurances, they don't go after these people committing insurance fraud. So what happens, they have to send the bill to the rest of the people that are uh, law-abiding citizens, and now we have to pay higher rates. My biggest problem this year was that I had to go ahead and pay my whole mortgage off, because even you guys wouldn't insure me. Nobody will insure me, so I no. have to go pay my, my insurance off. Now I have no insurance.
1: Yeah, a lot of people in Florida are in that situation. Miguel, thanks very much for your call, Mark. Miguel actually brings us to a very important question: What is the legislature in Florida doing about this? We, we're we're seeing bills move through again, targeting uh, abuse, fraud, as Miguel is pointing out. Uh, you know, particularly on the part of lo- the part of lawyers and contractors uh, who are or just you know. Uh, suing the heck out of, uh, you know, insurance companies, etc. But but that's really not the whole story. What's being done and what needs to be done?
4: Well, it's a big part of the story. Two major causes of the insurance crisis in Florida and why seven companies were declared insolvent in the last 12 months. Litigation abuse combined with assignment of benefits fraud. And here I'll give you a perfect example of litigation abuse. The legislature just passed a major tort reform bill last week to get lawsuits under control in the state against insurers. Prior to that law being signed into law rather by the governor, by Governor DeSantis, more than 90,000 lawsuits were filed by trial attorneys within days, literally within a five day period, 90,000 plus lawsuits filed against insurers before the bill became law last Friday. That is your headline is to litigation abuse and shows why we have such a crisis here in Florida. And then turning to Miguel's comments on fraud. Fraud has been Rampant in Florida, especially South Florida, for many years. In December, the legislature passed a bill which eliminates what's called assignment of benefits, which is where the homeowner signs over the claim to the third party, and the third party then, in many cases, commits fraud. They, for example, replace roofs. That don't need replacing; they're wear yeah. and tear. They're mm-hmm. not storm claims. That's the issue. All
1: right. Well, <laughs> Let me ask. Well, we're, we're actually going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry, yeah. uh, but this is <laughs> what a Florida mess. We could go on forever. Mark Friedlander is communications director for the Insurance Information Institute. Brianna Sachs also enjoy, uh, joined us. She's the climate reporter for the Washington Post. Thanks very much to both of you. Still to Thanks come. Thanks so
0: much. Still to come. Two South Florida teams make it to the final four in March Madness. Call us at 800-743-WRN or 800-743-9576. I'm Sergio Bustos. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. And I'm Tim Padgett. March Madness was madness this year. The Florida Atlantic University men's basketball team advanced to the final round of the NCAA Division I tournament, making the first appearance for the Owls in the team's 35-year history. Ninth-seeded FAU defeated third-seeded Kansas State during the spot in the Final Four. That's how many teams remain in the March Madness tournament. The Owls will face fifth seed San Diego State. Meanwhile, the fifth seed Miami Hurricanes also made it to the Final Four for the first
1: time in school history. The Hurricanes will face the fourth seeded Connecticut Huskies. The Final Four will play in Houston. As for Florida Atlantic, what kind of impact could this national recognition have on the school? Who are you rooting for? Go Owls, go Canes, let us know. Or ask us a question about the teams by calling 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Joining us now from Houston to discuss the incredible run by these Florida programs is Eric Wallace. He is the deputy sports editor for the Palm Beach Post, and as I mentioned, he's talking with us from Houston, where the final four games are being played starting tomorrow. Eric, Eric, welcome to the South Florida Roundup.
6: Appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely excited to be here.
1: Sure. Look, Eric, not just FAU and UM, but San Diego State are all playing in the Final Four for the first time. The other team, as we mentioned, the University of Connecticut, has been to the big dance before. But how unusual is it to have that many debutantes make it this far?
6: It's absolutely unprecedented. Uh, if you look back at the history of college basketball, the uh, seating era technically began in 1979 and, and never before have there been three teams uh making their debut uh in the final four at the same time uh, the tournament as a whole has been really just sort of up for grabs for for you know anybody out there uh you know i mean it's a once a de- decade type situation when you know number one seeds uh are, are not reaching the, the final four at all and and they were all knocked out uh you know in the sweet 16 this year so it's really just been a, a crazy tournament with a lot of upsets and a lot of a lot of teams that are not always on the national radar, uh, you know, having a lot of success.
0: Uh, Eric, what makes the FAU owl so great? Because everyone knows about the University of Miami, but FAU is one of those that just came out of nowhere. What what made this so great? Because they had won more than thirty games this year.
6: Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I think the thing that's impressed me most, uh, you know, watching them, you know, develop this season and, and as this run has taken off in the NCAA tournament, uh, is their style of play. Uh, you know, in an ideal world, they love to go up-tempo, shooting the ball, spreading the court, allowing their guards to slash to the basket if those three-point shots aren't open. Uh, and when they get the ball moving around, I mean, their passing is just, you know, absolutely precise. So I think, you know, I've been really impressed that they've been able to, you know, impose that style on others, uh, and forcing teams that, you know, maybe like a Tennessee uh, in the Sweet 16 who would have preferred to play a slower pace. Hmm. Uh, you know, FAU has been able to break through that and really, you know, Impose that 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 spread out style of 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 a, to bow basketball.
1: Yeah, Eric, is that is that that's interesting? Is is was that the case with other uh, Cinderella teams that we saw beat the big guys? You know, people like Princeton and Farley Dickinson. Is is that one of the best pieces of advice you can give a uh, a Cinderella school in this tournament? Is 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 you just you know go aggressive like General Patton uh, on on these on these big schools?
6: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think if that's your style, right? I mean, you you can't you know fit a, a square peg into a round hole, as they say. Uh, you know, if you don't have the three-point shooters, then it's not going to work for you. But, you know, Fairleigh Dickinson, you know, also played an up-tempo brand of, brand of basketball. They leaned a lot more heavily on their press to kind of, you know, generate turnovers. And uh, they were able to get a much bigger uh, Purdue team, you know, out of sorts uh, just with their, you know, ferociousness, uh, that they, that the, the way that they pressured the team. So I think if, you know, if that's your style and, and, and that's the way, you know, your program has been built, uh, then, then it's absolutely a great strategy.
0: Eric, I was going to ask, you know, if you know, there's always wanting to see blue chip schools, there, the Dukes of the world and others. Uh, but this year you've got three that are just really not part of uh, basketball lore in colleges. Is that uh, do you feel a sense of uh, uh, that people aren't as excited as they are this year and maybe in years past to see some of the better name marquee names?
6: Uh, you know, I don't know about the general public. I've obviously been very enmeshed in the uh, the South Florida, uh, you know, conversations these last few weeks. And uh, obviously, everybody is, is very excited for this uh, very rare Final Four. Um, you know, we have seen lower ticket prices. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of the locals here perhaps uh, were maybe not as attracted by, you know, an FAU in San Diego State instead of maybe a uh, Duke or, or North Carolina. So I think it really de- de- depends on, on your perspective, um, but works out well for for Florida basketball fans, right? Cheaper, cheaper tickets. And, uh, you know, hopefully you get a little bit better access and better seats uh, in NRG Stadium. Eric, how does
1: getting to a huge stage like this affect, benefit, or maybe in some ways, maybe hurt uh, a school like Florida Atlantic University, not as well known, uh, relatively sm- smaller compared to a lot of state schools. But how does getting to this arena affect uh, a school like this? Not just sports wise, but 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 in general, uh, in in terms of you know, it's 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 profile.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a lot of case studies from you know past NCAA tournaments, Cinderella runs, and. And we can get into whether or not FAU is, is actually a, a Cinderella uh, with what they've done this year. Right. But they, 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 the, they
1: keep saying, no, we're not a, we're not a, an underdog. Right.
6: <laughs> they put they push back very, very hard on right. that, which, uh, you know, I kind of appreciate that. I, I, I like to see the confidence from a from certainly an underdog program. Um, but, yeah, I mean. If you look at, at you know different NCAA tournament runs, George Mason, VCU, Florida Gulf Coast, another state example, right? Uh, they all saw significant enrollment bumps. You know after these NCAA tournament runs, um, I believe FAU, the university itself claimed uh, more than around 250 million uh, in advertising value just from the the basketball team's success in January. Wow. You know that's before they were appearing on CBS, TBS, TNT, uh, multiple you know multiple nights in a week and uh, I think one thing too that, that that can go a long way that you know maybe people don't think about is a little bit in the the, the pride in the university. You know, um, I've talked to some old uh, older basketball players who were a part of the original uh, FAU basketball teams, and uh, they, they they said that there were times when the the, the, the university would re- receive kind of derogatory remarks, "FAU" or <laughs> "find another university." And I think I think these things are just incredible for the the pride in the school and and being somebody who is an owl, right? I mean, you know, I walked out in NRG Stadium uh, earlier today and uh, the Florida Atlantic, you know, mascot was was interacting with, you know, Houston school children and there were fans mm-hmm. in the stands, you know, saying let's go owls and, I think it's just, you know, it can do a lot for the, the confidence of the of student body and uh, the university as a whole.
0: Yeah. Eric, I was going to ask, too, is obviously it's a great uh, recognition for FAU, but how about the players themselves? Are, are they going to profit from endorsements, uh, given their notoriety now being on this uh, not-so-Cinderella team?
6: Absolutely, yeah. No, there's there's certainly no doubt about that, and uh, FAU has, has been, like a lot of universities in the country, sort of, uh, you know trying to figure out the uh, the NIL era and write and, and establishing these collectives that can help these players uh profit from the national exposure that they're bringing to the university. Uh, I thought there was a funny story that came out this morning about uh you know Mattress Mack a, a famous local businessman from Houston who's renowned for, you know, large sports bets. Uh he contributed um a little more than $50,000 to uh, you know, a fundraising uh, collective at FAU to, to help families, uh, and, and people who are supportive of, of the player FAU players get out here to Houston and, and be able to enjoy the festivities.
1: Now also, Eric, we, you know, we have to give props to the university of Miami basketball team. I mean, this is traditionally known as a football school. How astounded are you that their basketball program has made it to the big dance?
6: It's, you know, it's funny. I, uh, We've mostly focused on on FAU, uh, you know, in, in the build up to this. But uh, interacting with Miami, you know, beat riders uh, this week, and I think they seem to be just as astounded <laughs> as, as as the people around FAU that that that, that they're here in this moment. And uh, obviously, I think it's a little bit different with uh, head coach Jim Larenega and the experience that he has in the NCAA tournament. Um, this group, they, they've got a lot of people on the team still from last year's run to the Elite yeah. Eight. Um, yeah. So it's it's a, it's a veteran group. They've kind of been down these avenues quite a bit more than than FAU has. And I think the thing that really stood out to me most so in the previous rounds, I mean, playing against the number one seed, Houston, uh, and and as well as the number two seed, Texas, great programs, multiple Mm -hmm. opportunities to fold, and they really just kind of stuck through it and uh, made a little bit of school history.
1: And we've also got to make a shout out to the Miami women's team who who did also advance the, the, the Elite Eight. Eric Wallace is the deputy sports editor for the Palm Beach Post. Eric, thank you so much for joining us and have a great time out there.
6: No problem. Thank you guys for having me on. Take
1: care. Finally on the roundup, a famous Florida man has been indicted. Uh, A Manhattan grand jury decided late yesterday to indict former President Donald Trump. He's expected to be arraigned early next week. WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter, Wilkin Brutus, is currently stationed outside the former president's Palm Beach estate, Mar-a-Lago, where a small but dedicated group of protesters is showing their support. To stay up to date on that developing story in Palm Beach, you can go to our website at WLRN.org. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Sergio Bustos, WLRN's Vice President for News. And I'm Tim Padgett. Thanks for listening and calling. Gracias. Messi. Obrigado.
6: WLRN Public Media.